Welcome to Yesterday Meets Today, Themes Throughout History. I'm Spencer Vollmer, your host and guide as we explore the themes connecting the histories of the distant and not-so-distant past with each other and also with our own more recent history. Together, we'll boldly venture out in pursuit of knowledge, always striving to learn new things about the past, the present, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves along the way. third week of our Tis the Season theme. So far, we've talked about Saturnalia and Yule. We also branched out and looked at Yalda, an Iranian winter solstice celebration. Today, we're going to talk about a celebration you're probably already at least somewhat familiar with. Today, we're going to talk about Hanukkah. Today, it's not uncommon to find Hanukkah referenced as a kind of Jewish alternative to Christmas. Even if you don't experience it personally, you can see the idea reflected in various forms of popular culture. I've seen it in several TV shows myself. Oftentimes with one or more characters who celebrate Christmas and find out another character doesn't, instead they celebrate Hanukkah and that often leads to learning about the holiday. Sometimes they find a way to celebrate the holiday side by side rather than keeping them separated. That said, Hanukkah has a history entirely separate from Christmas and traditions all its own. It goes all the way back to the 2nd century BCE and the rededication of the Second Temple in Jerusalem. Prior to the year 200 BCE, Judea was part of the Ptolemaic Kingdom in Egypt. This kingdom was founded in 305 BCE by Ptolemy I Soter. Ptolemy was a Macedonian Greek and a companion of Alexander the Great during his conquest. Following Alexander's death in 323 and the conflict that followed regarding who would rule his empire, Ptolemy managed to win control of Egypt and declared himself pharaoh. Not unexpected for one of Alexander's most trusted generals. Alexandria, a polis founded by Alexander in 331 BCE on the southern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, became the capital city of this new kingdom. By 200 BCE, Ptolemy V Epiphanes, fifth in the Ptolemy ruling line, was defeated in the Battle of Panium by Antiochus III the Great from Syria. The battle was a total loss for the Ptolemaic forces and Judea was brought into the Seleucid Empire. Antiochus III granted his new Jewish subjects the freedom to live according to their ancestral customs and practice their religion in the Temple of Jerusalem. Unfortunately, his son, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, did not share his father's dedication to those freedoms. There's two Jewish groups involved here. You already know about the first one. The Tobiads are the other. This group was Philhellene, that is, they embraced the Hellenization of Judaism. They embraced the influence of Greek culture, whereas those in Judea did not. They had previously been exiled from Judea to Syria in 170 BCE. They saw the rise of Antiochus IV Epiphanes as their chance to reclaim Jerusalem. And he did. The account of the Romano-Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, born in 37 CE in Jerusalem, which was then part of Roman Judea, gives us a look into what happened. This writing is found in his book, The Jewish War, published in 75 CE. In it, he writes of how Antiochus gathered a large army and attacked the Jews in 168 BCE. 
From that alone, we know he truly abandoned his father's views towards these people. He chose to take the city by force. He killed a very large number of those who still favored Ptolemy. His soldiers were allowed to plunder these people mercilessly. Clearly, it wasn't just taking back Jerusalem. It was a brutal attack meant to destroy these people. He turned his attention to the temple as well. For three years and six months, he prevented the practice of offering a daily sacrifice for expiation, or in other words, making amends for atonement. He didn't stop there, though. Judaism itself was outlawed. In 167 BCE, Antiochus defiled the temple by having an altar to Zeus erected within its walls. Going even beyond that, while he stopped the Jewish sacrifices, he started sacrifices of his own. Under his rule, pigs were sacrificed at the temple and Jews were expected to worship the Greek gods. Oh, and circumcision was outlawed. The banning of a religion was unheard of in Seleucid history. For Antiochus to do so was extreme and made it quite clear that he was siding with those Jews who wanted to Hellenize Jerusalem. In both the traditional and scholarly sources, that much is clear. All of this was more than the surviving Jews could bear. Retaliation was inevitable. It began with a Jewish priest named Matatias, along with his five sons, Johannan Gadi, Simeon Tassi, Elazor Avaran, Jonathan Aphus, and Judah Maccabee. They were the ones to rise and lead the revolt. The initial moves were small in scale. The first thing Matatias did was kill a Jew who wanted to do as Antiochus demanded and sacrifice a pig to Zeus in the temple. He then killed a Greek official who was present to enforce Antiochus's demands. However, the revolt ended for Matatias in 166 BCE when he died. The last we know of him is that he'd been forced to leave Jerusalem after an order was put out for his arrest. He, his sons, and the remaining Jews left to hide out in the wilderness in Judea. Beyond that, we don't know what happened to him or how he died. In fact, we can't be certain this was the year he died. All we know is that he escaped before being arrested and took his sons and the other Jews with him. While he did not live to see the revolt, his actions were the first steps in what is called the Maccabean Revolt. Such is the name we use for these Jews who stood against Antiochus and the Jews who wanted Hellenization. Among the sons of Matatias, it was Judah who stepped up to lead the Jews in their fight. The revolt involved the Maccabees utilizing guerrilla warfare tactics. They were noted as being quick and mobile, putting the Seleucid army at a disadvantage. They were bulky and slow though it was not the army that the Maccabees initially targeted. First, they focused their attention on the Hellenized Jews. As you can imagine, the number of these Jews was quite large by this time. The villages had taken on Greek religious influences, so the Maccabees went after those. They would enter villages and destroy any Greek altars they found. Additionally, they would forcibly outlaw any Hellenized Jews present. They even went and circumcised the boys that they found. In essence, the early stages of the revolt centered on undoing the Hellenization in the villages first, before they went after the big targets, Antiochus and the Second Temple. 
As these attacks progressed, they then had to deal with the Seleucid army. Many battles took place from 167 to 160 BCE as part of the revolt. The recapture of Jerusalem in 164 came shortly after the Battle of Beth Zur, in which the Maccabees once again utilized their guerrilla warfare tactics. These hit-and-run tactics resulted in small victories that added up, allowing them to rout the army. And so Jerusalem was retaken by the Maccabees. Jonathan Aphus, youngest son of Mattathias, was made high priest of the Second Temple. The temple was ritually cleansed by the Maccabees and rededicated as a Jewish temple with Jewish practices restored. The Maccabees continued their revolt, fighting to help other Jews under attack, such as Simeon's victories in Galilee, after which many of the Jews in the area relocated to Judea. A Seleucid army, quite large in number, was sent to stop the revolt. However, this army ended up turning back to Syria when they learned of the death of Antiochus. With the war against the Seleucids over, the internal conflict between the Maccabees and the Hellenized Jews came to the front. Without the Seleucid Empire as their allies, the Hellenized Greek influence fell apart. High priest Menelaus was executed and replaced by alchemists, both Hellenizing priests. The latter ended up running to the new Seleucid king when executing 60 priests who opposed him caused open conflict with the Maccabees. Imagine that. Meanwhile, the Seleucid Empire was in a bit of a mess. The nephew of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, Demetrius I Soter, had been in Rome and fled back to the empire in full defiance of the Roman Senate. Once he arrived, he declared himself king. To take this place, he killed Lysias, a general of the Seleucid army who had fought in Judea before returning to assume the position of regent while the son of Antiochus was too young to rule. It was he who was responsible for the agreement that made Jewish practices legal again. And even though Demetrius killed him and Antiochus' son, that freedom remained. As for what came later, things ended violently for all the sons of Mattathias. Elazar had already died in battle in 162. Despite forging an agreement with Rome, the first contact between the Jewish and the Romans, Judah found himself under attack by Demetrius. He sent an army of 22,000, led by General Bacchides, against Judah and those who still followed him, who may have numbered around 1,000. This was the Battle of Elasa in 160 BCE. After being forced out of Jerusalem by the overwhelming force, even the guerrilla warfare tactics were not enough this time, and Judah was killed in the battle, along with most who were with him. Though this led to the Seleucids once again having authority over Jerusalem, the revolt wasn't over. Jonathan led the revolt after the death of Judah. Following Jonathan's death in 143 BCE at the hands of the Seleucid king of the time, Diodotus Tirphon, Simeon took the lead. Then, in 135 BCE, Simeon was assassinated by his son-in-law, Ptolemy, son of Abubus. At some point prior to Jonathan's death, John had been captured and killed by the sons of Jambri from Medeba, though specific details of his death are scarce. In terms of the year he died, the only clues are that Jonathan and Simeon are alive when his death is mentioned in the first book of Maccabees. 
And that is the story of the Maccabees who led a revolt against Seleucid king Antiochus IV Epiphanes to reclaim Jerusalem and restore the second temple. The first book of Maccabees, or 1 Maccabees, is a book written in Hebrew by a Jewish author following the restoration of an independent Jewish kingdom. It covers the early Maccabean revolt through the rededication of the second temple. The original text is lost and the author is unknown. It is possible, based on the accuracy of the account when looked at alongside other historical information, that the author lived close to the time of the revolt or maybe even during it. There is also a second book of Maccabees which appears to have originally been written in Greek, probably Alexandria and Egypt. It covers the revolt as well, with a revised version of the first book and continues on to Judah's defeat of Seleucid general Nicanor in 161 BCE. So the work concludes one year before Judah's death. It is from the first and second books of Maccabees that we get the story of Hanukkah, though you won't find the story in the canonized Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, used today. The Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, was written before the events took place. It is mentioned in the New Testament in John 10.22-23, which reads, Then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. Some translations vary a little, but what's happening is the same. Around 200 years following the Maccabean Revolt, Jesus visited the temple during this particular time of celebration. Other than that, we don't really find the story of Hanukkah in these religious texts. We look to those first and second books of Maccabees. We also look to the Talmud, another central text in the Jewish faith. This one, by my understanding, is primarily about Jewish law. Not as a code of laws, but rather the text from which the code of Jewish law is derived. It is comprised of the Mishnah and Gemara texts. The Mishnah is the original written version of the oral law, while the Gemara is a record of rabbinic discussions that followed. So we've looked at how the Maccabees revolted, took back Jerusalem, and rededicated the second temple. Now let's look at what is referred to as the Hanukkah miracle and what we know about it. The source for this miracle comes from the Talmud. One task in the rededication of the temple was relighting the menorah. According to the Torah, the temple menorah must be lit with pure olive oil and one single light must be lit continuously. So, according to Jewish tradition, priests kept one light lit at all times, 24-7, and lit the other six alongside it during the day. Judah and the Maccabees needed to light the menorah, but found just one cruise, or earthenware jar, of pure oil. This was identified by the seal of the high priest, which signaled that it was indeed pure oil used for this purpose. The problem they faced was that the oil was only enough to keep it lit for one day. To make more, one had to be in a state of spiritual purity, and being warriors who had returned from the battlefield, none of the Maccabees qualified for this purity. They had to first undergo a ritual purification of their own following coming into contact with a corpse as they had on the battlefield. And this purification took seven days. So it was seven days of purification and one day to make the new oil 
for a total of eight days. So the story goes, the Maccabees lit the menorah with that one cruise of oil, expecting it to burn out after just one day. To their surprise, that single cruise of oil somehow sustained the menorah for the full eight days needed for them to make more. And so we have the Hanukkah miracle of the oil lasting eight days. And from that, the eight-day celebration of Hanukkah was declared by the Jewish sages in order to commemorate this miracle. Though, after the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE by Roman Emperor Titus's army, it took on new meaning. After that, it began to serve as a commemoration of the daily lighting of the menorah in the temple, as well as the temple itself. This is a bit of a side note now. If you're wondering why the celebration is eight days when technically the miracle was only the seven days after the initial day, you're not alone. Rabbi Joseph Caro, who lived from 1488 to 1575 CE, had that same question. Rabbi Caro was born in Toledo, the one in Spain, not Ohio. That one didn't come until much later. In 1492, he and his family fled from Spain to Portugal. They then fled to Turkey after the expulsion of Jews from Portugal in 1497. This was thanks to an invitation by the Ottoman Empire who invited the Jews to settle with them. Sometime after 1546, Carroll was ordained as a rabbi. Over his lifetime, he published several rabbinic works that are, to my understanding, considered masterpieces among said literature. Included is the Shulchan Aruch, the last great codification of Jewish law which is still the most widely consulted of Jewish legal codes. At one point in his lifetime, he posed the following question about the Hanukkah miracle. Why did they establish Hanukkah as eight days? After all, the oil in the container was enough to light for one night. This means the miracle was only for seven nights. Well, this question became rather famous. Many potential answers were offered. So much so that in Brooklyn in the 1900s, a book was written compiling 100 of them. The responses can be generally divided into three categories. The first is that the oil miracle was, in some way, actually eight days. The second is that the miracle was seven days, but the celebration is eight days for some other reason. The third is that the miracle was seven days, but the celebration is eight days for an entirely unrelated reason. Just a fun little side note. So that's where Hanukkah comes from. It should be noted that the first book of Maccabees does not recount any such tale of a miracle. Only an eight-day celebration after the rededication in 164. So it is only from the Talmud that we find the story of the miracle. And there have been other interpretations by scholars over the years. But there's no need for us to go into those today. That brings us to the celebrations of today, as well as the holiday's other name, the Festival of Lights. Having learned how the celebration came to be, you can understand where that second name comes from. Celebrations today center on lighting the nine-branched menorah. Yes, that's two more than we talked about in the temple. That's because this menorah is more specifically called a Hanukkah menorah or a Hanukkah. It commemorates the seven-branched menorah in the second temple, but is also distinct from it. 
The Hanukkah menorah has eight branches on either side with another in the middle, which must be higher from the others in order to be kosher. This middle candle is called the shamash, or helper, and is used to light the other candles. Starting with the first candle, each night one more candle is lit than the night before until all eight candles are lit on the eighth day. Blessings are usually said over lighting of the candles. One is a blessing for the lighting itself. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to kindle the Hanukkah lights, in which light would be singular on the first day. The other is a blessing for the miracles of Hanukkah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who performed miracles for our ancestors in those days at this time. Other traditions take place as well, including additions to daily prayers and the singing of hymns. The menorah is usually placed in a window of the home, not in the center or on the mantle or someplace like that, because it's meant to light the outside of the home rather than within. Other traditions involve food, latkes and jam-filled donuts, for example. There's also the exchange of gifts and the spinning of the dreidel, a four-sided spinning top. Each side is inscribed with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, nun, gimel, hey, and shin. From what I've found, they serve two purposes. The first is to represent the phrase, a great miracle occurred there in reference to the Hanukkah miracle. The second is part of the game played. I won't get into the rules of how to play, but each letter means something. Noon means nothing, in which case the player does nothing. Gimel means everything, in which case the player gets everything in the pot. Hay means half, in which case the player gets half of the pot, or if there's an odd number, they get half plus one. Shin means put in, in which case the player adds a game piece to the pot. For those interested, I'll try to post something with the rules on social media. And that's the celebration of Hanukkah. As with many holidays, you'll find some variations depending on where you go. Even with the Hanukkah menorah, which can be electric in cases where an open flame is not permitted, like a hospital. Now, to wrap up today, I want to take a moment to mention Kwanzaa, celebrated from December 26th to January 1st. You've probably heard the name, and the holiday itself is fairly new. It was created by Dr. Maulana Karenga at California State University. There, he was a professor of Black Studies as well as chairman. His creation of the holiday stemmed from a desire to unite African Americans as a community following the Watts riots. These riots began in the predominantly black Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles. Over six days, 34 people died, 1,032 people were injured, and 4,000 were arrested. The riots involved 32,000 people, destroyed 1,000 buildings, and hit 40 million in damages in six days. It all began with stepbrothers Marquette and Ronald Fry being pulled over by a white California Highway Patrol officer at 7 p.m. Wednesday night. Marquette failed a sobriety test and was arrested. He didn't think he should be arrested and was angry. 
He tried to fight one of the officers and Ronald joined in, partly to protest the arrest, but also to protect Marquette. A crowd gathered as this happened, which backup police thought to be hostile, and led to a fight between an officer and someone in the crowd. Ronald was thrown off and Marquette was cuffed on the ground. Their mother, Rena, arrived and thought the police were abusing him, so she got into a fight with them. She was arrested, as was Ronald, who tried to peacefully protest her arrest. The crowd got angrier as time went on. As two motorcycle police tried to leave, one was spit on. They tried to pursue the woman, only to be surrounded by the crowd. She was eventually arrested and dragged from the crowd, who mistakenly believed she was pregnant, which made them even angrier. By 7.45, the riot had well and truly begun. Rocks, bottles, and other items were thrown at buses and cars that were stopped by the incident. The next night, white drivers were being dragged from cars and beaten. The next day, Watts leaders, with police, held a meeting to try and bring calm back to the neighborhood. Rena was there as well, after she and her sons had been released that morning on bail, and she tried to calm the crowds as well. Unfortunately, this attempt failed as a teenager took the microphone and declared the rioters would move into more white areas of Los Angeles. At the end of the third day, the riot spread over 50 square miles. 14,000 National Guard troops arrived and put up barricades. Sniper fire from the rioters, police raids, and other clashes rocked Watts. Police Commissioner Parker only made things worse when he called the rioters monkeys in a zoo and implied Muslim infiltration. The final day involved police surrounding a mosque, gunfire, and arrest of the people inside. They also went into the building next door and even tear-gassed the sewers to prevent escape. At this time, two fires broke out and destroyed the mosque. The people arrested were freed, and the Muslim community accused the police of using the riots as a cover to destroy the mosque. Such terrible devastation. And it wasn't the result of that one event, but of an accumulation of tensions in Watts and elsewhere. African Americans had long been unhappy regarding living conditions and opportunities available to them, and the tension with police had been present for years. It was a boiling point that finally spilled over in a very, very complicated history. What I find truly sad is that many of these tensions are still going strong. And that's all I'll say on it for now because that's not our focus today. Back to Dr. Karenga. In his attempts to find a way to bring the community together following this tragedy, he founded a cultural organization and began researching harvest celebrations. To create Kwanzaa, he combined parts of several different celebrations, including the Ashanti whom we talked about, as well as the Zulu. Celebrations vary, but song and dance are common among them. You'll also find African drums, poetry, and storytelling, and a large traditional meal. On December 31st, there is a special meal called Karamu. Now here's why I decided to include Kwanzaa today. They also have a candle lighting. In their case, it is a kinara with seven candles. Each night, a child lights one candle, and one of the Nguzu Saba, Swahili for seven principles, is discussed. These are values created by Dr. Karenga that are designed as part of building community among African Americans. Briefly, the principles are 
unity, self-determination, collective work and responsibility, cooperative economics, purpose, creativity, and faith. The symbols are the Mazao, crops, Mkeka, placemat, Vibunzi, ear of corn, Mishuma Saba, the seven candles, Kinara, the candle holder, Kikombe Che Umoja, the unity cup, and Zawadi, gifts. Each of these has a meaning attached to them, and for those interested in reading more, I'll try to find a good link with more details. For now, though, it's time to wrap things up. We've learned a lot about Hanukkah and a bit about Kwanzaa, too. I will go ahead and let you know that I've already made notes, including Kwanzaa, as part of a future episode sometime next year. So I'll also cover more details then, and I hope you look forward to that. For now, we look to next week, our Christmas episode. I hope you'll tune in. Until then, take care. <music>